This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Drilling Deep. We are that place among the Freightways family of Freightcasts where we talk about oil and diesel, which you only get if you drill for them. That's why we call ourselves Drilling Deep. But we also drill deep into the issue of the day. And you know what? I just realized I didn't tell you my name. I'm John Kingston. I'm the host. Anyway, we've got a voice today that's been fairly controversial in the industry for a while. He's Steve Vaselli. He's now a university lecturer at an Ivy League school, no less. But he's mostly known for being the author of The Big Rig, a book that talked about the tough life of truck drivers. He should know he was a driver himself. He's going to be here with us in a few minutes. One of the numbers that we watch in the diesel market did something this past week that it hadn't done since January 2020 before the pandemic began. The price of ultra-low sulfur diesel on the CME Commodity Exchange crossed the $2 per gallon mark. That's not the type of thing that immediately shows up at the pump. Far from it, though, retail numbers, as we're going to talk about in a second, have been moving quickly. But I think the crossing of $2 is a significant benchmark that speaks to the continuing strength of the diesel market. Let's look at a couple of other numbers that I think support that idea. The Department of Energy's Energy Information Administration weekly diesel price rose this past Monday. The price of $3.14.2 was up 1.8 cents. It was the first increase after four weeks of declines and one week where the price was unchanged. And of course, those five weeks came after a record-breaking run of 20 weeks of increases. There are other signs of market tightening. That increase to more than $2 on the CME marked a rise of 5% in just one week, and that outpaced the increases in crude and gasoline for the week. That is a sure sign of strength. Retail prices sometimes lag wholesale and commodity price increases. Actually, they always lag them to some degree. Really, it's a question of how much. But right now, retail is moving up pretty quickly this time around. The average retail price in Atlanta, based on the DTS data in FreightWave Sonar, was up 11 cents in just eight days. Most notably, I think the relationship among the prices on the price curve are telling us that inventories are tightening. The market is now in a condition known as backwardation, where the price for immediate delivery of product is the most expensive out there. If you want to buy a contract for ultra-low sulfur diesel for delivery a year from now, it's going to be about 4.8 cents. Really, let's make it 5 cents less expensive than the front month barrel. Markets go into backwardation when inventories are tight. That 12-month spread is the widest backwardation in about two months. U.S. inventories of all non-jet fuel inventories in this past week's inventory report from the EIA put those stocks at 33.1 days of cover. You have to go back to the start of the pandemic to find a day's cover number that is tighter. One other thing, Travel Centers of America released its first quarter earnings, and those numbers are always very interesting because they include a very precise figure on how many gallons of diesel the uh, truck stops chain sold. And this was the second consecutive quarter of really strong numbers. That's not surprising, you know, when you look at the when you look at the freight market. But I think when you compare those TA numbers up against the EIA numbers, 
on demand, which shows a strong market, but not a particularly strong market. I'm starting to wonder whether the EIA numbers are have a few little accuracy problems. Now, I will tell you that these are modeled. These are not counted, uh, and they don't have the advantage of, uh, of TA, which is able to count every single gallon it sold. So, but I am going to assume that the TA numbers are indicative of the broader diesel market, and those numbers were very strong. As I've always said here on Drilling Deep during our discussions about diesel, the price of crude will be the biggest determining factor in what the price of diesel ultimately is. But there are other things too. And right now, those other things are signaling a tighter diesel market that is lifting diesel prices at the pump faster than the price of crude. It's one of the reasons why the jump at that pump, the jump at the pump, that's our, I think our new phrase here on Drilling Deep, the jump at the pump that you've seen in the past week has been head turning. It's a strong crude market, but it's an even stronger diesel market. We're going to be joined now today on Drilling Deep by somebody who is very well known on both sides of the employer and employee divide in trucking. He's Steve Vaselli, who came to fame in the industry when he wrote The Big Rig, Trucking and the Decline of the American Dream. He wrote that a few years ago. And it's a book that there are a lot of strong opinion on, opinions on out in that industry. He's a lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania in the sociology department, and he focuses his work there on transportation and on truck drivers. And as a former driver, he has never taken his eyes too far off the road. So, Steve, uh, thanks today for joining us on Drilling Deep. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. So is this a great time for drivers? And the, the, the numbers are incredible on, on pay rates. Uh, the, certainly the demand for their services is terrific. Uh, we finished writing one round of stories on higher pay rates. And then here come the press releases for the next round. I won't even call them around anymore. I mean, it's been pretty much nonstop since September. Have you ever seen a time like this? Not in the time that I've been studying the industry, which is about 15 years now. I mean, and I think it's going to continue for for the foreseeable future. So why aren't the numbers rising on the number of drivers out there? And everybody's saying this is the worst market ever for hiring drivers. If they teach you an econ 101, it's not supposed to be that. These sort of high wages should be attracting people into the industry. Uh, are we dealing just with a, a job that's got so many drawbacks to it that even higher wages aren't enticing people? You know, I, I think we have to have a historical perspective on that. We've we've had an industry that is, you know, it's churned through a lot of workers in the last few decades. Uh, you know, we've got entry level companies, right? That that segment and truckload that brings folks in, and we've had several, you know, decades of you know really high turnover. People coming in, trying it out, and saying it's not for me, right? Um, and and that's millions, millions of potential truck drivers have been turned off from the industry in the last few decades. And what's the fix for that? You know, I go on a lot of earnings calls. I've <clears throat> pre-pandemic would go to conferences and, you know, the, the number of sort of consulting companies and advisors that help, uh, are supposed to help companies get deal with retention issues. After a while, they, they all kind of say the same thing. They're all putting their efforts out there and things don't really seem to get better. Uh, it's easy to say, well, pay them more. They are paying them more. Maybe they could pay them even more further. Uh, but even the higher pay, when you look at the numbers, you know, they're not that great. Yeah, I think, you know, we have to look at the causes of, you know, the, the as the industry likes to call it, a life, the lifestyle required. Um, you know, and it, it's, I, I think we got to start there, which is, you know, we got to be frank and honest about this stuff. It's not a lifestyle. It's a job, right? Um, you know, it's not, 
the job doesn't require a lifestyle. It requires that you put in, you know, weeks at a time living out of a truck, you know, working odd hours, sometimes working 80, 100 hours a week, um, sleeping in that truck away from the family, um, you know, friends, church, uh, whatever it is that you enjoy at home, you're going to have to set it aside for, you know, many days, sometimes weeks at the start of it, you know, for a lot of training companies, sometimes it's months. And so, you know, the, that costs, you know, when, when, when drivers, and I, I talk to drivers, you know, all the time about kind of where you're going, where you're coming from in, in your work life, uh, you know, that's, it's hard to envision a future in an industry where you're not going to see your family for weeks at a time, months at a time. Um, when I drove, I didn't have kids at the time. Uh, my wife and I were, you know, thinking about starting a family. Um, it was just the two of us. And it was hard as hell, you know, to, to be out on the road for, for weeks at a time. I can't imagine it as a father. You know, I can't imagine just missing all those baseball games and, you know, even the birthday parties and things like that. So, I mean, I think that's really, you know, the, the foundation of the problem, right, is that we have a, a way of moving freight that has developed since deregulation, right? And, um, you know, w- within sort of 10, 15 years of deregulation, we had the the kind of operational characteristics, if you will, that we have today where drivers go out, you know, they're out on the road for a long period of time. They're sitting unpaid, you know, um, and that's the cheapest way to move the freight. Right. And so until those fundamentals change and and, and I think we are seeing some of that. Right. I mean, and, and we've seen it, you know, in the last 10 years, the increase in dedicated accounts. Right. The increase in, in dedicated lanes that you can put drivers on and companies know. You, know, you got a good driver, you got a couple years of experience, you know, that's or even six months of experience for some of the high turnover companies. And you say, hey, we've got a dedicated account. You know, you're a reliable driver. This will get you home weekly. Or, you know, we've got a dedicated lane. Right. Um, and you can be home every other night. Even. Um, and so the companies know this, you know, but but the market will not support, you know, or has not been able to support those regular routes, that regular schedule. Um, some of your listeners might remember J.B. Hunt years ago said, you know what, this this model's not working because it's costing us too much in terms of turnover and training uh, costs. Let's see what a, a hub and spoke would, you know, would give us. And then they they basically abandoned truckload as their primary, you know, focus. They said there's no there's no winning, you know, in this. Let's we're, we're going to have to diversify the business that you know, the, the trucking services that we provide and a lot of the big carriers, right? They went to, you know, 3PL, you know, models and brokerages and all sorts of stuff to, to supplement, you know, that, that truckload um, business. Cause it's just, it's just an impossible task to, to sort of make that, you know, a family friendly, good, you know, lifestyle for drivers without paying a fortune, which you can't sustain over time. What's the longest you've ever heard of anybody out on the road? A driver just going uh, down the road and making a lot of money and you know driving and doing just driving, driving, driving. Of you know, nine months to a year, I hear you know is probably the extreme that I hear. Um, you know, I am meeting you know drivers every few weeks or so who you know have given up the home, uh, you know, or just living out of the truck full time. They may take some you know some time off around the holidays or whatever, go stay with family for a few weeks. Uh, you know. This is this is more likely with the owner operators, you know, uh, especially the 
the lease operators, you know, um, who say, look, I'm going to, I'm going to milk this thing for all it's worth. <laughs> you know, I'm going to give up the, you know, get a PO box and, and live out of the truck. All right, well, let's talk about lease operators. So uh, a couple of weeks ago here on Drilling Deep, we had Matt Harris of Pathway Leasing. Uh, I had him on sort of as a defender of uh, lease deals uh, for getting into your truck. And as I was speaking to him, I couldn't help but think about some of the criticism that you had leveled at lease deals in the big rig. So uh, I thought, you know what, I've got Matt Harris on. I'm going to have to get Steve Vaselli on too. Uh, and, uh, you know, Matt uh, quoted some numbers. I thought the more interesting one was he said, I guess that in that particular year, the prior 12 months, he'd had about 25% of his uh, leaseholders turn into, uh, turn into owners. And if you think that most of the leases are three years, and if everybody did it and there was some kind of normal distribution, you'd figure a third would be every year would make it. He said he had about 25%. I thought that was pretty close. Um, is it any better than it used to be? Are your criticisms as pointed and as strong as they were when you wrote the book? Well, so I think, um, you know, I'm not familiar with, with their, with, with their numbers, of course. Um, but first of all, I'd say what they're trying to do is a unique thing, right? Relatively. I mean, the, having a leasing company that works with, uh, outside of a particular carrier for these lease purchases, um, you know, is, I, I don't know of another, I mean, Celadon's, um, you know, quality leasing tried to do that for a while, and, and that's partly what ended up getting them into into trouble and 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 causing their downfall was that they were trying to make a profitable business out of leasing to, you know, um, you know, lease contractors working for other carriers. You know, the the key to that model, right, is you have to get your cut off the top, right? Um, so you've got to have those partnerships with with those carriers who are going to make sure that the first thing that comes out of that check is your, is your lease payment, right? So, and, and this is, you know, so most carriers do that in-house, right? So, so these, you know, uh, third-party leasing companies that still take their cut rather than, you know, a driver going to a Freightliner dealership and buying themselves a truck or, or you know, or even a, a, a third-party leasing company that would do it, you know, on the open market without having to, you know, have that relationship with the carrier to collect their payments. This is different, right? Um, so, you know, what's happening today? I do think, you know, um, overall, this is a cyclical thing, right? It one of the advantages to leasing um, uh, and and independent contractors historically has been that it allows carriers to, uh, you know, to increase their fleet size with less capital investment, right? Um, to be able to attract in today's market, you know, drivers who are looking for something different. Um, and I think to retain drivers who you're about to lose. And that's, you know, that's the typical pattern for a lot of them. Um, you know, CR England with the settlement a couple of years ago, Prime and some others, you know, oftentimes you have drivers coming right out of uh, uh, truck driving school, right? No experience at all um, signing a lease to, you know, to buy the truck or lease the truck that they're going to operate. Um most often, right, what you do is you have a driver who has three months, six months experience, and then they're, you know, they're, that would probably be the earliest that most carriers would try to convert them into an independent contractor. A lot of them wait a year or two, and that's kind of been, I'd say, the more common practices. You wait a year or two, and that's when a driver who, you know, maybe you trained or got their first, you know, their finishing training from your carrier you know, they, they can now move in the in the labor market, right? They can go from those 35, 
$40,000 entry level positions where they're out for two weeks. And now maybe they can pick up, you know, something with a private carrier or LTL or, or something along those lines. Um, right now, those pathways are really good. I mean, even those, you know, for years, the driver shortage, you know, you'd only hear about that from the big truckload carriers, you know, the LTL guys, et cetera, would say, yeah, it's not our, it's, it's not bothering us yet, you know, but of course that's the pipeline, right? I mean, that truckload market is the pipeline to those better jobs and those better carriers. Now I'm hearing them say, I can't find drivers. I've never had trouble finding drivers. You know, we, we offer good pay. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was interesting that, you know, the Tank Truck Association last week came out with their prediction about a shortage, and that got a lot of press. Yeah. I mean, those are, those are drivers who are, they're all home at night, right? And none of those, none of those trucks go out overnight, and, um, and yet they say they're going to be squeezed, too. Well, and I, you know, um, so I think that's the big, that's the bigger picture I think we've got to see leasing from, right? And I, I don't, my, you know, no particular company, I don't, I don't want to demonize anybody here. This is what, this is the market we've created, right, <laughs> um, here. And it's broken. There is no doubt about it. We have, you know, millions of workers whose wages have been stagnant for, you know, uh, decades, right? Um, and we have, Definitely tens of thousands, but probably hundreds of thousands of good jobs that are that are undersupplied with workers. Something is wrong. Right. I mean, th this is just not. And so you can't go to the, you know, the traditional tech textbook economics explanations of it because they, <laughs> they can't explain it. Right. Um, and I and I do think that we have to take that historical look and we have to look at, at, at the pathways to these better jobs. And they're broken. The links are broken. So we're 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 losing good blue collar, conscientious workers, the kind of, you know, and that's really what separates the good drivers from from the bad. And, you know, in my experience, interviewing them is, you know, these are disciplined, hardworking you know, family values, you know, guys, they're all guys. Let's let's face it. I mean, the the push to get women into long haul, it's it hasn't worked and it hasn't worked for very important reasons about, you know, the way our society works and the roles that women play and all these other things. And as well as some real barriers, you know, to women, harassment and, and, and things like that that are, are routine out there. Um, you know, but we should have we have millions of, of, of men who would like to have a job that pays sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year in these better-paying jobs, um, but they want to get home at night, and we've we've just systematically turned them off. Um, well, you know, I mean, before the pandemic hit, when you looked at the wage gains in this country, not just we're not just talking truck drivers, but the wage the wage gains I'd say in the last year to two before the pandemic hit were disproportionately going to more blue-collar jobs. You know that. Yes. The, the, the white collar management stuff had kind of tapped out and suddenly you were getting decent raises well in excess of inflation uh, for a lot of jobs that for years had languished, as you just said. And I think the key thing is, is going to be, will that now pick up once the pandemic runs its course? And it's very possible that, you know, you're seeing signs of that in a higher driver pay. You know, I, I read about a $50 bonus that a McDonald's was offering just to come in and do an interview. You know, and, and this this could be a structural shift here that we started to see pre-pandemic that may just resume. Yeah, I think that was a real that is a real bright spot, you know, um, pre-pandemic of what was happening. And I do think, you know, um, I understand the concerns that lots of small business owners have right now 
around hiring with these enhanced unemployment payments. Um, and, and I think it, you know, we have to assume that this is going to have an effect on wages. I mean, the what it's going to too, too many anecdotes. You know, there's there's too many anecdotes of you know, I'm I'm not I'm, I'm going to stay unemployed for a little longer because of the added pay. It's it's the yeah, they're anecdotes, but they're piling up. Yeah, and I, I think you know it's it's only rational, right? I mean, you're gonna especially when you think that a lot of people, you know, there, there's there's off the off the books cash stuff you can be doing. So if if I can get an enhanced unemployment check and I can you know still do my lawn business or whatever else I'm doing, you know, um, on on the side for cash, it, it's just a rational thing that people aren't coming back until they get a price that that makes it worthwhile. That I, I don't. I don't see any way that's not going to have, you know, further upward pressure on driver wages. Um, you know, if, if, if the American jobs plan goes through and we've got lots of construction jobs um, competing for drivers, not just competing for drivers who, you know, could otherwise be, you know, swinging a hammer, but actual drivers, right? I mean, actual heavy equipment operators, CD, you know, uh, dumps and other stuff, you know, we're going to see even, even greater pressure on, on this labor market coming forward. And I do think this is the opportunity not just to say, okay, we're going to raise pay, you know, to try to get a short-term fix, but to really look at the long-term problems. Like, you know, what, why are those trucks, you know, I get this thing about truck parking all the time. Now I know it's a huge problem. And when I talk to transportation, you know, planners and DOT folks, they say, we got to build more parking. We got to build more parking. I, I, and I agree, we got to build more parking, but we also should ask, why are they parking? I mean, this is just a fundamental inefficiency in the system. You got your biggest capital investment. I mean, we talk about these lease operators, right, who are going to be buying this, this asset. It's sitting two-thirds of the day. You, you look at the numbers from these big carriers. These trucks are only moving seven and a half, eight hours a day on average. It's just the one truck, one driver model is just fundamentally inefficient. And so that parking is a, is a sign of dysfunction. And we're going to have some of it, but the growing, growing need, it's because they're sitting, waiting to load. You know, they're sitting overnight unpaid. It's, you know, it's systemic. Yeah, and, and that's why you, that's why a lot of these companies, when they've been announcing um, pay rises, new pay rates, they will tell you that team drivers will get paid more uh, than a solo driver, simply for the same reason, because it provides a greater level of efficiency for using the asset. Let's go back to the, the talk about lease. Uh, again, you were, you know, I, I read I read the book a couple of years ago, so I'm not going to sit here and tell you I'm remembering all the specifics. Uh, but uh, you were pretty vehement about lease deals being, I mean, I, I walked away from it thinking that you felt they were uniformly, uniformly bad. Uh, are you softened at all on that? I mean, is this a, is this a legitimate way toward ownership, but one that you need to go into with eyes open? So, you know, I would say the vast majority of them are, you know, not the best route for, for the driver. Um, so, you know, why is that? I, I think, first of all, we got to get apples to apples comparisons, right? Um, how much is the driver putting in, in their pocket, right? Now, a lot of drivers who are, again, we're talking often about the most inexperienced drivers who are getting into this, right? Um, when we go apples to apples, you know, you got to include unemployment. You got to include workers' compensation. You got to include potentially benefits, you know, in some places even still, you know, retirement benefits and things like that, right? Um, Self-employment. And then you have to factor in those big-term swings and fluctuations. So, 
you know, right now, could you get into it um, and and really kind of call your own shots? You can't, but um, in terms of pricing, but can you play the market on the upside and get to some carrier who is, you know, looking to put on drivers at, you know, uh, a higher cost because rates are so good, you know, and do better than you could as a driver? Yeah, it's way more likely now. What's going to happen in two years, three years? Now, historically, that's been, it's been cyclical, right? As, as we all know, it's seasonally cyclical, right? Um, and, it's, and, it's, and it's cyclical over the years. So I do think right now is, you know, definitely the best market um, that, that we've seen, you know, really high rates, really low interest rates, and just really consistent demand that, that you know, uh, you know, whether or not you were going to get your own authority or lease, it is the better time to do it. But you got to look long term, right? As a driver, at least as an experienced driver, now you could play the market. Um, but right now is better. Now, that that said, you know, is there a driver that it's going to work out better for than than employment? You know, long term, and I've seen numbers for tens of thousands of these drivers um, and tens of thousands of, of company drivers. Apples to apples, experienced drivers per mile. Right, you're going to do way better, especially when you look at the total picture as an employee. And that's, you know, <laughs> part of that's just that you're going to get home. You know, if you look at these drivers that are successful at the leases, they're on the road. So right now, you know, you could take a couple days off, but I, you know, I can tell you, I've talked to hundreds of them at, at in depth about this. In the back of their head is that damn truck sitting outside costing me money. When they're home, you know, and it's just that never leaves your head. Um, yeah, you know, I, I was when, when I when I talked to uh, Matt, I, I drew an analogy, and I just want to see if I'll float it by you too. That that having a that during the years when you're paying off your lease is almost like when you're a hotshot that comes out of college and you go to some Wall Street firm or some big law firm, and they work you like a dog. They work you, you know, 70, 80 hours a week, six, seven hours, six, seven days a week. But at the end of it, you know, maybe you're going to make partner. Maybe you're going to make a lot of money. Um, is it the same way a bit with leasing that, you know, for the, the three years of the lease? And I don't know if the, the, the lease are all three years. That's what Matt had said. But let's say a three-year lease that, yeah, you know, you're just going to be working like crazy. But at the end of it, you you know, you own an asset that and you can collect all the money from. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the problem with that is that, you know, what's that asset worth? Um, and so, you, you know, for some of these guys, maybe you, you know, you figure you run that thing hard for three years. Now you're getting into that point where uh, companies want to dump it, right? For over the road purposes, you, you know, you could move it into a regional operation where, or, or local. But as you get into that, you know, three, 400,000 mile range, you're going to, that's when you're going to start to see the big maintenance required. Um, and you're going to see that decline in, in reliability. So, you know, the, and usually the buyouts, you know, these things are structured so that there's not a lot of equity in that vehicle, right? When you, the, the, the street value of that thing um, is not going to be much different from, from what you owe. And you're going to have to switch, you know, you, you know, can you con continue to, you know, profitably run that thing? Um, probably not because your maintenance costs per mile are going to go up at that point, right? And that's why the big fleets are, you know, they're, they're, they're switching out of them. Um, you know, if you wanted to go that 
go the route of being independent, right? So there's the idea that this is a stepping stone, which I don't, I frankly don't see very, very often. And the more experienced operators that I talk to, owner operators say, you can't go that way uh, because you're not building up the real business skills. What it takes to go independent is the customer relationships, understanding the pricing, right? Knowing really how to play that market um, to get the highest value. And that's exactly what the company controls in a lease purchase, right? They're the ones finding the freight. They're the ones pricing the freight and assigning the freight. So the driver's really not doing more than they do. Now, you're getting experience as a long-haul truck driver, which obviously is going to be critical for understanding you know, how that work is done as an owner-operator. But you're not getting that, that market experience. Steve, we could talk a long time. <laughs> and, and I hope we'll have you back here, okay? Yeah, oh, absolutely, John. I'd love to. All right. So our guest today on Drilling Deep has been Steve Vaselli. Uh, the author of The Big Rig, Trucking and the Decline of the American Dream. It is not a new book, but what I find fascinating is that I constantly see references to it. So it is a very important book in that uh, it's still very much in people's consciousness as an overview of what it's like to be behind the wheel. Uh, Steve's a lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania in the Sociology Department, and he's going to be back on Drilling Deep again. You've been listening to Drilling Deep. We are part of the FreightWaves family of podcasts, which we call Freightcasts. You can find us on all the major platforms for podcasts. I've been your host, John Kingston. Please join us again.